to John chapter 15. We, uh, we're continuing our series on, on going through uh, the vision of the church. And uh, if you kind of look in your contact sheets or you look on the banners, which the other banner's not here today actually, but very often is there. And, and you see again and again these, these six points of our vision of what we stand for and, uh, and, and what we're all about. And our aim as we kind of work through uh, these different points of the vision is that together as a body, we kind of run a race together, that we kind of have a, uh, a real ownership together of what this vision is all about. And, uh, and that together we become more of who Jesus has called us to be. Uh, and so we've, we've kind of spent time uh, a, a while ago looking at proclaiming Jesus Christ to people today and looked at how we're all kind of involved in that. And then for the last few weeks, we've been looking at this whole issue of making disciples, about uh, creating a, a community of all of us, of, of committed followers of Jesus. And today, I kind of want to carry on, uh, on on that kind of theme, and I want to pick up on this idea of, of loving each other. And we're going to look at that from John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. The things should come up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. Fantastic. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I've learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Father, we pray, please, as we, as we look at your word and we look at what you have to say to us, would you open our hearts 
Would you open our minds? Would you be speaking to us? Lord, we're desperate to hear from you. But we don't just want to hear. We want to, we want to respond to it as well. And so, Lord, please, would you give us willing hearts? Would you come by your spirit right now? Would you bring your words that you spoke 2,000 years ago to life? And would you speak them to us now again? Lord, we welcome you and we want to hear from you because you have the words of eternal life. Amen. Fantastic. Uh, Fruitful living. Who, I wonder if I ask you, I bet every hand will go up, who wants to live a fruitful life with Jesus? Yeah, quite a few of us. This is good. Who, Who wants to see others who don't already know Jesus coming to enter into a relationship with him and finding true life? Yeah. Who wants to become more like Jesus in everything that we are and that we do? And, and who wants, now I've got my hand up before I even ask the questions to this one. Who wants to be in a place where whatever we ask God for, he gives us? That's a, that's a pretty good place to be, isn't it? I'm, I'm happy with that one. Well, here, here's the good news. Here's the fantastic news. That as we read this passage that Jesus has spoken to us about fruitful living, we see so abundantly clearly, Jesus wants us and longs for us to live fruitful lives. He doesn't make it an impossibility that he kind of sort of teases us about. He longs for us to be fruitful and to live fruitful lives. Take a look at verse 8 of, uh, of that passage again. You've got your Bibles. Go and have a look at it. Verse 8, it says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. He wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to live fruitful lives because in doing so, it reveals more of himself to the world. He wants us to bear fruit. Verse 11 Jesus is telling us all about how we can live fruitful lives. And he says this in verse 11. I have told you this, how to bear fruit. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He wants us to experience the joy that comes of having a fruitful life with him. And jump to uh, verse 16. And he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that wherever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. He wants us to live fruitful lives. He wants us to become like him. He wants us to experience the joy of seeing others discover true life by knowing Jesus. He wants us to know the joy of a fruitful life. He wants us to get to that place where whatever we ask of him, he gives. He wants us to be in that place. And he, he, he doesn't kind of just make it as hard as possible so that as few as possible ever make it there. He's telling us how to do it. He's telling us how to become fruitful because he delights in us being fruitful. He delights in seeing us live lives that bear fruit. And we need to get rid of this misconception that so many of us sometimes have, that God sets us up to fail. God never, ever sets us up to fail. He never sends us down a dead end. It might seem like it to us at times, but he never sets us up to fail. God always sets us up to succeed. He always sets us up to live fruitful lives for him. So the question is, how, how do we become fruitful? How can we live fruitful lives? 
And the simple answer is that we have to remain in the vine. We have to remain in Jesus. Take a look at at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What's he say? If you want to be fruitful, remain in me. And again in verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If we want to bear fruit, if we want to get to that place where we're so like Jesus, if we want to get to that place where our heart is so similar to his heart that whatever we ask for, we know it's his will and therefore he's going to give it to us. He wants us to get to that place, but the way that we do it is by remaining in Jesus. It's very easy to say that, isn't it? But what's that mean? What's it mean to remain in Jesus? What's it mean to abide in Jesus? What's it mean? How do we remain in him? And Jesus kind of tells us, he says kind of the same thing, but in two ways. And these are the kind of two ways in which he says it. First of all, he says, in order to remain in me, you need to be open to being pruned. That sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? Sounds a bit funny. Take, take a look. Verse 2, 3 and 4. He says, The Father cuts off every branch in me that bears fruit, no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be made even more fruitful. Jesus wants us to be fruitful, but if we want to be fruitful, we have to be willing to be in a place of pruning. Pruning is not comfortable, is it? Pruning's chopping back all the stuff of ourselves. Pruning's chopping right in to, the, to ourselves and, and taking off everything that's of us so that all we're left with is what God wants within us. And that's a painful process. But God says, if you want to bear fruit, if you want to live a fruitful life, if you want to know the joy of following me, you need to be willing to be pruned. You need to be willing to be cut back. And what's that mean? What's it mean to be pruned? He continues to say, and and remember the context here. Jesus is speaking primarily to his 12 disciples, to the guys who've kind of left everything and have followed him for three years. And uh, and Jesus says this to these 12 guys. He says, if if you bear fruit, uh, while every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. He's saying to the disciples, You've already been pruned. You're already prepared for more fruit. You've already been cut back. You've already been prepared. And and how is it they've been prepared? What does Jesus say? He says, you're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. How does pruning happen? Pruning happens from hearing the word of God. But not just hearing it, actually responding to the word of God. Pruning means that we are open to hearing everything that God has to say to us. The primary way that we're ever going to hear that is through this, through the Bible. But we hear it as well in our prayer as we hear him speaking to us. We may hear it through the prophetic voice of others that God uses. But regardless, if we want to be in a place where we're open to being pruned, it means that we don't just hear the word of God, but that we respond to it. Because it's in hearing God that we're convicted. And it's in the conviction then that we do something about it. And that is the pruning. It's through his word that it convicts us and it brings us to a place where we allow God to chop off the stuff that is not of him. 
We need to be hearing the word of God and we need to be responding to it. And Jesus says to the 12, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He'd been, he'd been speaking a message to them over the previous three years, both in word but also in the way he embodied it to the 12 disciples. And the 12 had left everything and had followed him. They'd responded to the word. They'd allowed themselves to be pruned by him. He says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. But then he continues and says to them in verse 4, remain in me as I also remain in you. He's saying to the disciples, you've heard my word, you've responded, but this is a continual thing. You might have responded once or twice or three times or however many times, but as soon as you stop listening to my word and stop responding to it, you're no longer putting yourself in a place where you can be pruned and you're no longer remaining in me. And so if we want to remain in Jesus, we need to allow ourselves to be in a place where we hear God's word and we allow it to speak into our lives and allow it to change us and that we respond to it. And Jesus says the same thing uh, again in verse 10, but he just drops the metaphor of the vine and the branches and he just says it really bluntly. And he says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my father's commands and remain in his love. If we want to remain in Jesus, we need to live lives of obedience. We need to hear his word and act on it, do something with it. Revelation of God always requires a response. We've been crying out this morning, haven't we? God, would you open our eyes? Would you let us see more of you? But do we realize that when, when, when that happens, it will always require something of us. It will always require us to respond to the revelation that he brings of himself. It's really, really important that we don't misread what's here in verse 10, though. Jesus says, if you, uh, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. It's so important that we don't mishear that. It's so easy to kind of twist that into thinking that Jesus is saying, I'll only love you if you do what I say. I'll only love you if you kind of do the things that I'm telling you to do. It's not like that. Jesus isn't just this kind of mean dictator who says, my love is only, only for you if you do what I say. Jesus loves us because he loves us. Nothing, nothing can separate that. Nothing can stop that. Jesus loves you because he loves you. You're accepted in him. He loves you to the point that he died on a cross for you. He allowed his relationship with the Father to be broken in two so that we would never, ever have to experience being apart from the Father. He gave himself up. That is the extent to which he's shown us his love. He loves us, and his love is not dependent on anything we say or do or think, even the doubts that we have. It doesn't stop the fact that Jesus loves us. Nothing can change that. But what Jesus is saying here is that his love for us always wants the best for us. The fact that he loves us means that he wants the best for us. And he knows that the best for us is what he's laid out before us, the things that he's asking of us. See verse 11, straight after he says that, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my father's commands and remain in his love. And he says, verse 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Jesus knows that it's when we're obedient, when we respond to his word, when we do what he asks of us, 
He knows that when we do that, that puts us into a position where we can experience true joy. It's a bit like worship. It's why God asks us to worship him. It's not because he's some kind of egotistical maniac who just loves to see us groveling and to hear his name kind of spoken again and again and again because he gets some kind of strange kick out of it. He knows that when we worship, when we recognize him for the truth of who he is and his goodness and his majesty and his loftiness, when we recognize the truth of who he is and we worship him, he knows that that puts us in a position where we lower ourselves, we empty ourselves, and we're positioned then to be filled with the fullness of everything that he is. That's why he asks us to be obedient, because he wants to be able to give everything that he has for us. But as long as we keep doing it our own way, we're closed and we can't. If we want to bear fruit, we need to remain in him. Be open to responding to his word so that we can receive true joy. And the most amazing thing is, is that Jesus sets the example. He says himself, keep my commands just as I've kept my father's commands. I love it. Jesus is God, isn't he? Jesus, Jesus he, he's God. And yet he chose to leave his throne. He chose to come down from heaven, to come to earth, and he set the most incredible example. He limited himself to humanity, even though he was God. And in his humanity, he chose to be obedient to the Father because he knew that it was in obedience to the Father that he would be full of the Father and be the perfect revelation of him so that everyone else in the world could see the Father through Jesus. He's not asking anything of us that he hasn't done himself. And it's having the fullness of Jesus in us as we're obedient to him that we bear fruit. And that in itself reveals the Father, reveals Jesus to the world around us in our obedience to him. So, in short, as we've kind of looked at so far, if we want to bear fruit, if we want to see other people coming to know Jesus, if we want to be becoming more like Jesus, if we want the joy of that fruitful life, then we continually need to be listening and responding to Jesus' commands and to the word of God. And we could stop there, and that would be kind of a, you know, a valid understanding of what Jesus says here in, in John 15. But actually, he goes on and he says more. And, and it's this more, really, that I want us to focus our attention on, specifically as a challenge to being obedient to what he speaks to us. And Jesus says, if you, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. And then he goes on. And he says this in verse 12. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. And he expands what that love looks like. And then he goes on and he repeats it again in verse 17. This is my command. Love each other. Out of all the things that Jesus has spoken to his disciples about over the three years that he's been with them, of all the things that he's told them, of all the things that he's shown them in his life, he highlights this one command and zooms in on it as a summary of everything that he said. And he says, this is what it is to obey my commands. Love one another. And so we come to kind of recognizing our effectiveness in bearing fruit, our effectiveness in becoming more like Jesus, and therefore in being able to reveal Jesus to other people is directly related to our response to this command, 
to love each other as we're also loved by Jesus. So if we want to be authentic, fruit-bearing followers of Jesus, then we kind of need to ask ourselves this question. What's it look like to love like Jesus? And Jesus opens this up. He begins to say what it is. Verse 13, he says this. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Love in the way that Jesus loves us is to lay down your life. And, and, and Jesus did it, didn't we? We've already said Jesus is the perfect example. He ultimately laid down his life for us, literally. He died for us. He, he gave up his very life and died for us. And that is the level of love that he's referring to when he commands us to love. But he also, he also laid down his life for his followers in his life as well as in death, didn't he? It wasn't just in, in dying, but it was in his life that he actually modeled, he showed what it is to love. Just a couple of chapters previously in, in, in John, John 13, uh, Jesus uh, was coming towards the end of his time. He knew that the cross was, was, was coming, it was happening. He knew he was going to die. And, and not long before that, just a couple of chapters previously, he's, he's eating with his 12 disciples. He's having a meal with them. He's hanging out with them. And, and they kind of get through the meal, and they're kind of just munching away and enjoying time together. And then Jesus does the most outstanding thing. He gets up, and he strips off his outer layers of clothes. He humbles himself, and he puts a towel around his waist. And then he goes around, and one by one of each of his friends, he goes and washes their feet. Now, we've heard that story so many times, haven't we? And, and it's so easy to kind of get caught up and, oh, yeah, Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And it's kind of almost a phrase we chuck off. But think about it. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. The job of washing the feet of people was one of the lowest slaves. It was the job of one of the lowest slaves to wash the feet. And Jesus, Jesus, who in all the stuff that he'd been doing, in all the stuff that he'd been speaking about, all the miracles that he'd been doing had been showing to everyone that he was God, that he was a king, that he was not only the king of Israel, but he was the king of all kings. He was the king of creation. He was God above everything. And yet he showed that love looks like lowering yourself to the lowest of slaves and washing people's feet, humbling yourself. And it begs the question of us, how, how often, and I ask myself in all these questions that I'm going to ask, how often do we willingly lower ourselves for the sake of other people? And, and do we spend more time allowing other people to serve us than serving other people? And don't get me wrong in that. I'm not saying it's wrong to be loved. I'm not saying it's wrong to be served. But there is a balance, isn't there? And it's a question to ask. What is that balance like? Do I spend more time serving other people or allowing other people to serve me? Jesus, uh, as we look through the Gospels and we see his life, he was criticized, wasn't he, for hanging out uh, with, with not good people, apparently, with, of, with drunkards and uh, with prostitutes, with, with outcasts, with sinners. He was criticized of it. And, uh, and, and you know his response when he was criticized? He said this. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
And that kind of begs the question for us, doesn't it? How, I wonder, how, how do we spend most of our social time? Do we kind of spend it with those who are really easy to get along with and love and, and those who are good fun and those who kind of make us feel really good just because we're spending time with them? Or do we spend time with boring people? Do we spend time with unlovely people, with annoying people, with lonely people? And again, don't mishear me. I'm not saying it's wrong to have good friends. We all need good friends who we can just be ourselves with and whose company we enjoy. But there's a balance, isn't there? How do we spend most of our social time? See, if we're going to live like Jesus and we're going to love like Jesus, then it's not just about kind of random acts of kindness occasionally when it suits us and, uh, and when it makes us feel good and virtuous. If we're going to be loving like Jesus loved, it might, it might actually cause inconvenience to us. It might inconvenience us. It, might, it not, might not fit in with our personal agenda. It might not fit in with our, with our timetables. I, uh, I love the story uh, in, in Matthew 14 uh, of how Jesus responded to the news of his cousin John's death. You remember John, John the Baptist, he was beheaded. And, uh, and the, once he was beheaded, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus. And they said, Jesus, John, John's been killed and his head has been chopped off. And, and naturally, like, if that was you, you'd want to get a bit of space, wouldn't you? You would want a bit of space with bad news like that. And it says, and this is what I love about Jesus, we can relate to him so well. It said, Jesus set out in a boat to the other side of the lake to a solitary place. He just wanted time out. He'd got bad news. He just needed space and time alone. And I guess we are like that. But this is the bit that just astonishes me about Jesus. Is that the crowds discover where he's heading on the boat. And so they leg it. And by the time Jesus gets to where he's going, he gets off the boat. And there's crowds surrounding him. Now, if it was you or I, I wouldn't mind betting. Well, if it was me, I wouldn't mind betting. I'd see the crowds and I'd probably say things in my mind that I shouldn't be saying. And I'd probably just run a mile to try and get a bit of space. And we'd probably say, for goodness sake, I deserve a bit of space. And I'm not saying it's wrong to grieve. But I just love Jesus' response. He said he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Do you know how much energy it takes to have compassion and to pray with people and to stand alongside people when you're, when you're in a place that's not good yourself? And yet I love that about Jesus. It wasn't his personal agenda. He didn't put his own needs first. He had compassion that's the love that he's calling us to. It's another question. When, when was the last time when was the last time that we didn't do something that we wanted to do, or that we changed our plans for the sake of loving someone else? We've kind of looked at it already, but, but Jesus, Jesus lived out. He was the example. Of love, he he embodied it. It wasn't just words, and uh, and we see that. You remember that in the, right at the beginning of John's gospel, uh, verse fourteen, he says the it says the word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. 
I love Eugene Peterson's version in the message. Uh, it just kind of makes it a little bit more kind of down to earth. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It's amazing, isn't it? That is, that is who Jesus is. That is how his love is made known, not just through words. He moved into the neighborhood. He comes and gets involved in the hubbub of life, in the nitty-gritty, in the, in the dirt, in the grime. He gets involved in it. See, love isn't just empty words. It, it, it takes on appearance. Love looks like something. Love, love doesn't just speak from a platform. It doesn't even just kind of cheer on really heartily from the sidelines. Love goes and runs with the runner in the race. Love gets involved. If we see someone who kind of has pain or hurt or disappointment, simply acknowledging that in words isn't going to do anything. Like in one sense, it's nice that we recognize that someone's in a situation that's not, that's not easy. But what are we going to do about it? It's kind of meaningless unless it actually moves us to kind of make love look like something for that person. Just imagine some, someone amongst us uh, gets made redundant. What are we going to do? Are we simply just going to go up to them and say, sorry, mate, that's really crappy, isn't it, that, that you got made redundant? That must really suck. And just walk off. Well, in one sense, it's nice that you've noticed, but what difference is it going to make? And I'm not saying that in that situation, we can't necessarily provide a job for them, but surely love looks like something for that person, other than just simply a word. And words are powerful, and don't mishear that. Like Sometimes it's really timely just to go up to someone and say, hey, I've noticed. But actually, it's so much more than words. Love looks like something. And it's all about uh, what love looks like for different individuals. Like Jesus' love is Jesus' love, but it takes on different appearances at different times for different people. Uh, I love, you look through the Gospels, and, uh, and Jesus heals numerous people, doesn't he? Um, and, and so often he heals, and he, it, just with a word, all he has to do is say, be healed, and they might be healed. Incredible. And yet so often we look through the Gospels of when Jesus heals people, and he doesn't just speak words, he goes beyond speaking words. And it's in those moments that I think we really need to kind of have our antennae up and say, why is he going beyond? What's that mean? And one of the, one of the examples, Matthew 8, you remember when the leper comes to Jesus and he says to him, Jesus, you, you, can you heal me? Will you heal me? And actually Jesus does heal him with just a word, he says, be clean. But he does something before he does that. He reaches out his hand and he touches the leper. The leper, the untouchable, the unclean one, the one whose society says, keep away, hadn't experienced anyone touching him for however long. And Jesus reaches down. Love looks like something. And for that leper, it looked like touch. And this is the question that we always need to be asking for ourselves, for every person who's in front of us. What does love look like for this person? What does love look like for the person who stood in front of me? And for some people, it's really obvious. Like some, love is really obvious sometimes. For the beggar, it might look like bread. Or for the homeless person, it might look like a bed for the night. Uh, for, for, for the homebound, it might look like just a visit once a week. For the new parents, it, it might look like taking a meal around for them. Sometimes it's obvious, isn't it? But actually, sometimes it's a little bit more difficult. We need to ask this question. I wonder, what, what, would, what does love look like for the successful young businessman who's new to the area? 
there doesn't seem to be any initial need. What's love look like for the newly weds? What's love look like for the wealthy retired woman? What's love look like for the critical cynic amongst us? What's love look like for the single parent? Love takes on a face, and we need to ask that question. Every person that we see, what's love look like for this person? And the thing is, sometimes we'll never know. We'll never know what love should look like for that person, unless we actually allow ourselves to spend enough time with people to get to know them and actually open up ourselves to them and allow them to open up. You know, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? The things that you discover when you just take a little bit of time to get to know someone that you've never known about someone before. You might have seen them so many times in your life, but if you've actually taken that little bit of time to get to know them properly, the things you discover, and you suddenly discover that love, you, you have an ability to love them in a way that you wouldn't have done otherwise. Jesus was known, wasn't he, for hanging out and eating with people. He wasn't standoffish. He, he, he drew alongside people in the situations in which they were in. He, he opened up and he shared his life. He did life with people. And just a really practical challenge. I wonder how, how often, and I know for some of us we do this a lot, but how often do we open up our homes to other people? How often do we invite people to come and share food with us? It's a really powerful thing. It's a really powerful thing. And I don't mean, uh, please don't mishear this, but I've, I've done this myself. But churches, I've discovered, are really good places to go. And everyone says, oh, we must have you around for a meal. Everyone always tells you, you must have you around for a meal. The number of meals I haven't had from people who've offered them, incredible. I'm not just saying that to give me a meal. I'm disappearing with Anna, so it's probably game over in that respect. But, <laughs> oh, hello. But actually, like, don't just give the offer. Follow through with it. Sharing food with people is a really, really powerful thing that we can do. This is all crucial, crucial stuff. John 13, uh, 35. Just after Jesus had washed the feet of the disciples. He says this. He says, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, our love for other followers of Jesus, the way in which we love each other, the way in which we do life with each other, is the sign to the world that we're Jesus' followers. And our love for one another is the, one of the key ways in which God chooses to reveal himself to the world. And so it demands of us, it demands of us a balanced use of our time with others. Uh, we need to spend time both with, with, with each other, with followers of Jesus, but we also need to be spending time deliberately and intentionally with people who don't yet know Jesus. I read a, uh, a, uh, Ed lent me a book called Compassion, a fantastic little book uh, by Henry Newen and a, and a couple of other guys. And, uh, and in it was a really amazing uh, reflection from a guy called uh, Joe Marino, who... Uh, back in the 70s, went out to Calcutta to work amongst the real poor and the broken and the homeless. And, and he stayed with, with an organization, with a bunch, a band of, of brothers, as they called themselves, who kind of saw it as their mission to love and care for the poor in Calcutta. And, 
I, I was going to bring the book. I've forgotten it, and I, I haven't got it. But he, made the, he, he puts in his journal uh, this response. He says, I met brother so-and-so today, and he told me that if we can't love each other as brothers, then we're not allowed to be a part of this mission. And then he met another one of the brothers, and he says, brother so-and-so told me today, our love for our brothers together is crucial. And we ask anyone who can't keep peace and love each other as a community to leave because how can we love the poor if we can't love each other? And I thought that was really a, a fantastic insight, isn't it? The way we love each other, the way we serve each other, the way we look out for each other, the way we get alongside each other, the way we open up our lives to each other in humility, like Jesus did for us, is the extent to which we're going to be able to reveal Jesus to others. But flip it the other way, if we have no friendship with people who don't know Jesus, how are they ever going to encounter the loving community of followers of Jesus? Uh, just a really practical way, maybe, to try and put some of this into practice. Uh, Ed and I were at a new wine conference uh, for, for, for church leaders a while ago, a month or two ago. And uh, the guy, Alan Hirsch, was speaking. And, and he said all sorts of kind of really clever, geeky-sounding things, um, which were all great and fantastic. Um, but he's, there was one thing from the whole conference which has stuck with me, uh, which I thought was a, an amazing tool. And he said in a community of believers that he was with, they, they tried to get to the core, the heart, of what it meant to follow Jesus and what their real values were. And they jotted down these values. And then against each value, they listed a few ways, and practically they could put that into practice. And just briefly, two of the values that he said in their community they came up with uh, was, was that they value blessing one another and other people because they believe that was something that Jesus calls us to do. And they also value eating together because he believes that's something that Jesus calls us to do. And I loved it. And the, the challenge that he set, set his community in that respect was this. He said, if we're, if we're going to talk about this, we need to do something about it as well. So let's once a week agree that we're going to bless three different people and we're going to actively choose that one of them's someone who follows Jesus, one of them's someone who doesn't follow Jesus and one of them can just be whoever we want it to be. And it's not that doing that in itself is the answer but it's just a means to start doing this stuff. And I know for some of us we are doing a lot of it already but just actually a real way of kind of getting into it. And with the eat uh, they believed that eating with each other and fellowship was really key and important. And the challenge that he gave uh, was, can you spend three times a week where you eat with other people? Once with followers of Jesus, once with people who don't follow Jesus, and once with whoever you, you fancy it being. And, and some of you might hear that and kind of think, wow, that's a real time commitment. And I'm, like, I, don't, I don't think in his challenge he was actually necessarily expecting you have to invite people over and cook the most amazing meal. Like, even just going out for, for lunch with your work colleague like, in your lunch break and having your sandwiches. That's eating together, isn't it? It's spending time together, getting alongside each other. But it challenged me, actually, because I thought, wow, if I don't have time to be doing this stuff, I've missed the point, haven't I? If I don't have time to be doing these things, like, and don't mishear me, I know the circumstances in life sometimes which make that difficult. And we need to, you know, like I say, this challenge is not um, an end in itself. It's just a way of kind of trying to put this into practice. But I want, I want to challenge you to do this. And I encourage you to, to, if you're not part of a home group, get involved in a home group. 
because it's in the home group setting that we can actually keep challenging each other on this stuff and that we can really develop good relationships with people who do know Jesus. And we can challenge each other in that context of how we're loving intentionally other people who don't know Jesus. So the conclusion, really, that I've come to from this passage is that if we want to be fruitful, if we want to be becoming more like Jesus, if we want to be fruitful in seeing other people coming to know Jesus, if we want to be in a place where we can experience the joy of living a fruitful life, then we need to heed this command that Jesus gives us to love each other. Should we stand as we kind of respond? And I'm just going to read from Philippians chapter 2, which I think portrays the most incredible example that we have of this. Let's just meditate on this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, thank you that you set us up to succeed in living as fruitful followers of you. Thank you that you long for us to experience the joy of being more like you, the joy of seeing other people coming to know you, the joy of coming to that place where our hearts are so similar to yours that we cry out and whatever we ask for in your name is ours. But Lord, we recognize that that, that comes in response to your words on how we should live. And Lord, please, we cry out, please, would you, would you bring re- fresh revelation of the love that you have for us, the love that you have for us, so that as, that as that hits our hearts, that we might respond in loving others in that way. And that we might see your kingdom coming. That we might live fruitful lives for you. We know you chose us and you appointed us to bear fruit. And Lord, that's our cry. Lord, we need your help. We cannot do it in our strength. But thank you that when we remain in you, when we keep open to you, when we keep open to hearing your word and responding to it, your promise is that we will bear fruit. And we thank you for that. Let's just remain quiet for a moment. The band are going to come up. Uh, If you have children, you'll need to go and collect them now so that we can honor our uh, junior church leaders. But we're just going to spend a couple of moments just reflecting. If there's anything, uh, anything that you would like prayer for, uh, we love, like, one of the ways that we, we like loving each other in this community is to, to stand with each other and pray with each other and to invite God into the situations that we face. Uh, so if you'd like prayer, maybe it's something that's kind of spoken to you through, through today's service, uh, God's challenging you or something or maybe something completely unrelated, would you, there's, there's an opportunity to pray at the back in the corner, uh, and there will be people there to pray with you.